the flesh, nor the will of man, but the will of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And, full, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father's, at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of God. Well, uh, I don't know if you've been able to get outside and enjoy uh, some of the sunshine. We, we, we kind of had the season change, and then it went, like, went back to winter, and then the seasons kind of changed a little bit. But uh, hopefully you've had an opportunity to get outside and enjoy some sunshine and the greenery and the blue sky. I was able last night right, uh, right, before, uh, right before dark, right up until dark, to go for a bike ride. And it was just, uh, just a beautiful evening and beautiful sunset last night. And Hopefully we'll all get a chance to be outside some today and enjoy the Lord's creation. Uh, James 1, says, uh, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, when I hear, a passage of, when I hear that passage of Scripture, and I lay that alongside other passages of Scripture, for example, like to care for orphans and widows, it, it kind of makes sense to me. Okay, I can't just hear that. I need to actually do something and care for the poor or the orphans or the widows. But when I hear this, hear, hear James one twenty two in, in my own heart and mind, which says not to merely listen to the word, but to do what it says, that is a harder thing uh, to appropriate when the scripture is speaking these grand theological truths. What does it mean to not just listen to the word, but to do what it says when the Bible is describing uh, the Son of God and the Logos in this, this grand and great uh, theological passage that we have uh, in the beginning of John's gospel? And so what I want to do today is look again at that prologue, at that introduction in John 1 of John's gospel. But I, I want to for us to do the, do the work of saying, okay, God, what would you want to do through me from this passage? How do you want to transform us as individuals and as a congregation? And so we're going to go through this passage again, and, and we're going to see three specific areas where we need his grace to be changed. Uh, let's bow our heads uh, once again before we go through this passage of Scripture. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the word of God. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, not only to the grand theological truths, not only that we would learn, but that we would be changed, that we would become more and more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in character and in deed. So speak to us today, speak to each one of us in the various situations and various settings in life that we come from. We come here uh, to this place this morning, God, in 
all over the map. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are full of grief and, and anguish and confusion. Others of us are full of joy and enthusiasm and excitement. We come from a variety of different places. And we pray that you would meet us through your word this morning. And mostly, God, that we would not be just hearers, but that we would be changed and that we would be doers of your word. We ask for your presence and your power and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in John 1 again, which uh, Lloyd has just read. And I'm going to draw three points out where we need his grace. And the first one comes out of verses 1 and 2. Let me go ahead and read that one more time. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. As Pastor Adam mentioned last week, uh, last week this gospel begins with this phrase that the Bible begins with, in the beginning. And, and a reader of this would, all of us, would, are reminded of that. And, and what we should be uh, understanding is in, in the beginning, before the universe was even created, uh, not only was God there, but there was the logos there, or the word. The Greek word that's translated word here is the word logos. I'm going to be using that throughout the sermon. So God was there, but there was also the logos, who was God, uh, of the same essence, And if we jump forward all the way down to verse 14, we learn who the Logos is. The Logos is the Son of God who becomes flesh, who becomes a human being. It is the person of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If uh, if I was going to use the stage here as a visual aid to describe what was going on, if we, we start over on this side, this description of who the Son of God is, The Bible is telling us as far as we go in that direction in eternity past, uh, the Son of God, the Logos, was there. And he existed with the Father, and at some point the universe is created. And then we could use the beginning of the pulpit here as verse 14, where this eternal Logos, the Son of God, becomes a baby born in Bethlehem. So this edge of the pulpit right here is verse 14 and is the first Christmas day where the Logos becomes a human being. This is just mind-boggling, mysterious truth about who our God is. And we know that our God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't have the Holy Spirit here in verses 1 through 14, but if we had more time and a fuller message, we could talk about that. But I'm going to talk here at the beginning about the relationship between the Father and the Son, or the, or God and the Logos, or the Word. So again, this diagram, we have eternity past over here, going as far as in that direction, before the beginning, before the creation. The Father and the Son are together. And then, miraculously, out of His grace, God, the Logos, becomes a baby, a human being, and lives His life and does His primary work, which would be the death and the resurrection of our Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then the God-man, the God who has become flesh, that's kind of what the pulpit represents here, at his resurrection is kind of what the end of the pulpit represents, is how he is now. This God-man is now a resurrected human being. You might remember in those post-resurrection appearances where Jesus shows up in a room. We don't know fully what glorified bodies are going to look like, but that's that's what, how Jesus exists now and goes on forever and ever into eternity future. The one who was the Logos before the creation of the universe over there became a human being, died for our sins, rose again, 
and is now at the right hand of the Father and will be a, a man and God forever. And it is, this is just mind-boggling. This is just, this is just crazy. This is just mysterious. And we cannot fully grasp who God is. But what I want to do, and what I've said from this morning, what, I, what I've said from the outset this morning, is I want us not just to, to think theologically and think about who God is, but every time we encounter the Word of God, He wants to change us. If we were just learning facts, if we were just understanding things about Him, we are missing the boat. Those things are important, and, and having an understanding of who God is is important, but the whole reason that we do that is He wants to change us. He wants to make us more loving. He wants to make us more holy. He wants to change us into the image of his son. So I want to point out something here in verses 1 and 2 that's actually repeated twice. Look at verse 1. It says that the word was with God. The word was with God. And in case we miss that, it's repeated in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. And so in verses 1 and 2, one of the things that God wants us to see is that there is relationship, that there is distinction of persons in God, in the Trinity. There is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and it is the perfect relationship. And and we might ask, what characterizes this relationship? What is it like for the Father and the Son to uh, interrelate? If we move a little forward in John's Gospel... Uh, It's on page 886. I forgot to hit that. If we move forward in John's gospel, we see what characterizes the relationship between the father and the son is love. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The same uh, truth is repeated here in John 5. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. But this isn't just a unidirectional relationship. It isn't just the father loving the son, but it's also the son loving the Father. John 14, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So we have this picture in John 1 and 2 that should get our minds going that God exists in community, that God exists in relationship. And there is this most amazing and beautiful kind of love between God the Father and God the Son. Now, for us... The Bible is full of passages that tell us about the importance of relationships. And there are a variety, varieties of means of grace or ways that God wants to change us through the scriptures, through prayer, through a whole variety of things. But one of the main ways that he wants to change you and change me into the image of Christ is through the means of grace of relationships with other Christians. We're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We're, we're, we're called to sharpen one another. And we have a hard time doing this. And one of the things that distinguishes our relationships with one another and the Father's relationship with the Son is, is sin. We have sin that's involved in our relationships. Our relationships are hard. They um, get conflicted. We, we uh, upset each other. Um, especially those that we care most about. We, we tend to uh, uh, do that with our spouses, with our children, with those that we're closest to. This doesn't characterize the relationship between the father and son. It's one of the things that, that the Lord wants us to see here out of verses 1 and 2 is the importance of us living in community and becoming Christ-like through our relationships through one another. And we just frankly have a hard time with this. 
one uh, writer of this book actually had a couple authors, had an insight one night. I'm not sure which one of them, Lane or Tripp, wrote this, but look at what uh, they said. He said, I had an epiphany one Wednesday evening in the middle of our small group meeting. People were sharing prayer requests, but it was the same old grocery list of situational, self-protective prayer requests masquerading as openness and self-disclosure. And if you've been around the church for any length of period of time or been in a men's or women's Bible study or a small group, you might be able to relate to what, they're, what he's talking about here. That people are sharing about what's going on in their lives, but the reality is we are not really being transformed that much into the image of Christ because what we're sharing are, are these grocery lists of situations, but we're really not talking about what's going on in our hearts. And so we are not availing ourselves to the kind of community and relationships that God has designed for us to become like him. This writer goes on, he says, Why did we all feel the need to clean up our prayer requests before giving them? Why were we all so skilled at editing ourselves out of our prayer requests? Why were we so good at showing the difficult circumstances we faced, yet so afraid of talking about our struggle in the middle of them? Did we really care more about what people thought than we did about getting help, than we cared about becoming like Christ? And I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, if you're honest, we often don't really get to this core level of, of what we are struggling with, what is really going on in, uh, in our hearts. We have this protective mechanisms. Last thing he says uh, that I'm going to quote, he, he says this, I wondered who we thought we were fooling. It was as if we had all agreed upon an unspoken set of rules, a conspiracy of silence. I looked around the room. These people, these were people I thought I knew well. I did know what many of them were facing, yet I knew little of the wars going on inside them. God exists in community, and he has designed us also to live in community. And if we are going to become like him, if we are going to be changed from who we are and be characterized by peace and joy and love and the kinds of things that God's designed, it's going to happen through, in part, there are lots of other ways as well, but it's going to happen in part through our relationships with other people. And we have got to break through these kinds of of settings where we we kind of talk about what's going on, but we don't really share uh, what's going on in, in our lives. Now, all of us have probably been in a group where, where somebody has just come in and just gone right to the core. Everybody's kind of talking in the superficial level and we're sharing about our experiences. And then someone just comes in and says, man, I am, I am just, um, I have really struggled this week. And they just share something very vulnerable that's on, that's on a whole nother level. I've struggled this week with, with pornography or with gossiping about uh, this person, or, or coveting this relationship, this marriage that I see over here, that my marriage isn't anything like that, and I'm just, I've just struggled with coveting that relationship, or that spouse, that, that guy he is, just seems so kind and, and nice, and, and my husband isn't, and I've just been coveting that. You hear someone say something like that, and you just kind of just takes the group to another level. Anybody ever experienced that sort of thing in a group setting that is part of what god is is looking for us the the way for us to to live and to grow is to be authentic and real he exists in community and he looks for us as well to exist in real community his grace enables us to break down the walls of self-protection 
so we can love and be loved in redemptive ways. Unlike the relationship between the Father and the Son, there's no redemption that needs to take place there. Their relationship is perfect. It's characterized by love. But our relationships are messy and our lives are messy. And we need one another to help redeem ourselves and to put our sins to death and to move forward in life. So this is the first of the three things I want to point out in verses 1 and 2. Let's come back to the text here and work our way. The second one comes out of verse 5. But look at verse 3 with me. It says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. And I want to comment on verse 5 here. Uh, Some of our translations say that uh, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or has not comprehended it. And then other translations say something like the darkness has not overcome it or the darkness has not extinguished it. And one of the things that we're going to learn about John, uh, two things that we're going to learn about John's writing in his gospel is one of the things that he does is he likes to use lots of small words that have big meanings. He uses very simple language to speak about profound truths. And this is partially what he does in verses 1 and 2, especially in the original language. All of these words are very, very short, very, very simple words. Another thing that John does is he'll use a word intentionally that has two different meanings. And that's one of the things that's going on here in verse 5. And so when it says that the darkness has not uh, understood it, or has not under or, or not comprehended it. Part of of what the meaning he is here is that that by and large, Jesus' ministry was rejected by people. It, it, it was not embraced. Uh, the, the 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 people did not understand who he was. But I think primarily the meaning that is that is intended to come across here is that the darkness, which represents evil in John's gospel, uh, did not overcome the Lord Jesus and his task on the cross and what he was going to do. And so this, this verse is really screaming out to us. Again, we want to be not just hearers of the word, we want to be doers. And this verse is screaming out to us that we have to have hope in our lives. That whatever darkness is coming into our lives, that if we are followers of Christ, that we can make it through that darkness. The reference here is, is both spiritual and physical. If we look at uh, a couple passages, three passages from each of the Gospels in Matthew, it says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. And that was both a physical darkness and that was a spiritual darkness as our Lord and Jesus suffered on the cross for three hours. This is repeated three times. What John is telling us is the darkness did not overcome our Lord. And his message to us this morning is that whatever kind of darkness is in our lives, Whatever kind of sin, whatever kind of suffering, whatever kind of struggle you are dealing with, if you are Christ, if you follow him, if you trust him, he will see you through that darkness, even through death. This is the core message of the gospel. It is a message of hope. And we all have a varieties of kinds of darknesses that, that come into our lives. Um, in our family, my extended family, I married into this large extended family, and there has been darkness that has been coming into our household and many other households as my mother-in-law has been fighting, uh, fighting uh, lung cancer. And my wife is, is number seven of, of eight children, 
a very tight, tight family, a uh, very godly family. And uh, her mother has influence in all of her adult children's lives, their spouses' lives. Their, I think they have 26 grandchildren, three great-grandchildren, and she is just suffering a lot right now. And so part of the message that I have been trying to preach to myself and to my wife is that as we seek the Lord Jesus Christ, as this darkness is seeking to come into our home, the message of the gospel is that the darkness does not overcome those who are in the light. The darkness didn't overcome Christ as he suffered the sins of the world upon him. And the darkness that comes into our lives, we can find our way through that because of what he has done. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Never were there three such hours since the day God created man upon the earth. He's referring to those three hours when Christ was on the cross. Never such a dark and awful scene. It was the turning point of that great affair, man's redemption and salvation. The believer may have tasted some drops of bitterness, but he can only form a very feeble idea of the greatness of Christ's sufferings. If we, if we go back, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday uh, in, in a few weeks, but if we go back and think about the sky literally turning dark over Israel as Christ is on the cross, as, as disciples scattering, as discouragement all over the place, as the sins of the world are being placed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he's suffering, it was the darkest time, but it was also the most amazing time. And whatever darkness is coming into our lives is, is only a feeble idea of the greatness of Christ's sufferings. And the message of the gospel is that the light, the light uh, that gives light to every man, this light will not be overcome by the darkness, but the light, the light makes it through. We make it through. And so this is a message of hope um, that we see in verse, uh, in verse 5, the message of hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going back to this idea of community and relationships uh, that we saw in, in verses 1 and 2, uh, all of us have probably also been a part of a group where somebody just breaks through and overcomes personal darkness in such a way that brings tremendous encouragement to others. And uh, there's the, the recent testimony of, of this happening uh, here at Cornerstone. Uh, we had a man, I'll, I'll call him Sam. He uh, came to our church uh, just you know, uh, not that long ago, his first time, and comes to uh, one of our small groups, and he uh, comes to that small group, and he makes it past this superficial level of just sharing kind of what's going on, and he describes where his life has been, and there has been so much darkness and, and depression and discouragement in, in Sam's uh, life. Uh, he's lost his family. Uh, his wife and his children have, have rejected him and distances, uh, dis- distanced themselves from him, because he has uh, lost their trust as he has turned over and over and over again uh, to alcohol to, to numb the darkness in his life. And he's betrayed their trust and he's, he's lost them. They won't talk to him. He's away from them. He's lost, uh, he's lost his job. He's totally, totally down. And he shows up and, and he knows that the only way forward is really through Christ and through the light. And he knows he's got to be vulnerable and reach out. And he shows up in one of our small groups and just shares what's going on in this life. And he knows that this is a place where, where, uh, where hope exists. And that God, even though he's at the very end of his rope, that the darkness will not overcome the light 
if he can remain in that light and have faith. So the second thing that I wanted to uh, point out this morning is that God's grace enables us to overcome personal darkness so that we can live in the light. Uh, This is a grand passage about great theology, about who the Son of God is, but God also wants to change us through this message, through the message of hope that we see uh, in verse 5. Let's come back to uh, verse 6, and we're going to work our way down through verse 14. Verse 6, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now, as I read and studied this passage this week, um, I thought, you know, what is, what is going on here? This just didn't seem to fit. There's, again, this grand theological language, and now we're talking in verse 6 about this man uh, was sent from God, John the Baptist he's referring to here. Uh, what is going on here? And I kind of wrestled with this passage this week, and anytime we think that the Bible isn't making sense or something seems out of place, of course, the problem is with us. The problem is not with the Word of God. God has inspired his word, and it is perfect, and it is without error. And so as I, as I read through this, this paragraph and thought, why is this paragraph here? What is going on? Why is he talking about John the Baptist in the middle? In verse 10, he goes back to this grand description of the Son of God, of the eternal Logos. Why is this here? And I thought uh, that in verse 8, uh, look at verse 8, it says, He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And as I looked at, at, at verse 8 and I thought about the situation on the ground, I thought John is addressing the, the fundamental problem here uh, that, that we have even today in our, in our own hearts. And that is that we put something or someone else in the place of Christ. And in John's day in the first century, lots of people, I'm not sure why, the guy seems kind of crazy, but they were getting really excited about John the Baptist. Uh, they, they, they were making a big deal about him. And so John here at the beginning of his gospel is going out of his way to say, no, uh, he's not the light. He is not the one. He is a pointer. He is a witness. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the true light. And so he's dealing with the reality of the, on the ground. He's dealing with what the people in that first century were dealing with. And it is really the same thing. Our issue isn't John the Baptist, but we have the same problem. The Bible calls it idolatry, and that is when we put... Uh, things or people or circumstances in the place of Jesus Christ. We all have this tendency to love our children, our wives, our homes, our cars, our stuff, our success, our jobs, uh, whatever it might be. We have this tendency to put other things in the Lord Jesus' place. And here they had the tendency of focusing on John the Baptist. And so we have this uh, dealing with the reality on the ground. Let's come back to the passage here, verse 10. And then the final uh, point is going to come out of verse 14. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The own here is referring to, to the Jews, to Israel. Uh, Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and, and he went to them, but they, by and large, did not recognize him. They did not receive him. Look at verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
This verse is an emphatic passage about how God ultimately is responsible for us seeing him and becoming one of his children and being adopted into his family. Look at verse 13 again. How do we become children of God? It is not by being born to Christian parents. It is not by natural descent. It is not by human decision. It is not by a man's will. It is by the grace and mercy of God. Every time a person comes to know Christ, it is a miraculous work of his grace. And verse, uh, verse 13 is probably one of the most emphatic verses that tells us that God is the one who does this, which incidentally should be very freeing for us as we try to sometimes argue and connive and, 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 and get with people. And we need to proclaim the gospel and we need to defend the faith. But ultimately, it, we have to rely upon the work of God and his Holy Spirit to bring anyone to Christ, our children, our neighbors, our friends, whoever it is that we are, we are praying for. What we desperately need uh, is God's grace. So coming to uh, kind of the, the main verse here, verse 14, where we get kind of the main theme of what this whole passage is about, this introduction to John's gospel, it says the word or the logos became flesh. It became flesh. This is Christmas. This is the eternal logos becoming a human being, being born in Bethlehem. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Anyone reading this passage, verse 14, uh, who is familiar with the scriptures would think of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And this whole concept, uh, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. This whole concept of the tabernacle or the temple as a place where the presence of God was represented by, by the tabernacle or the temple. And here in John 1, we're saying that this, the word who is God, we were told in verse 1, this is God, he has become a human being. And John chooses to use this word sarks or this word flesh. Um, it doesn't have the idea of sinful nature here. It doesn't have any, any, uh, any taint of sin in it. But he didn't choose a regular word for human. He didn't use the, the generic word for man or human, anthropos, or other words that were available to him. He used this word that is very fragile, that shows how blunt and low we are in human beings. And it's emphasizing this place where this eternal logos, who's been forever with God the Father, has become a human being. These are massive changes, and they're massive changes in a downward direction. And I want to mention, uh, before we close this morning, four of the changes that come about as the eternal Logos, God the Son, becomes a human being. One of those changes is a change of residence. A change of residence. John six fifty one. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I'm emphasizing here the part I put in yellow. And, uh, you know, a, a, a diagram of the platform isn't really sufficient. But you just imagine God the Son forever existing in this perfect, loving relationship with the Father, also with the Spirit, not mentioned here in John 1, but also with the Spirit, all three persons. And now he lives in, in Nazareth. Uh, he's become... A human being, born in Bethlehem, hometown Nazareth, 
Nazareth is one of those places, you know, uh, we have places that we make fun of uh, in, in our country. Maybe it's Cleveland or it's uh, Detroit with all of the f- uh, failure there. I was making fun of Baker and Barstow the other week in Sunday school. We have these kinds of places that we, uh, we, we think nothing good comes from there. These are not great places. And, and that is the kind of place where the word, the eternal logos, who was there before the universe was created, is living. He's living in Nazareth. This is mind-boggling. This is a massive change. So there's a change of residence. There's a change of glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is a prayer of Jesus in John 17. So there's some way that there's this glory between the Father and the Son that existed, that in some, some way it changed. We still see the glory of God in Jesus and his public ministry, but in some way it changed. And he's praying this prayer in John 17, this great prayer, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you. So we see this picture of the word becoming flesh. We see this picture of humility. We, have this, we, we see this picture of the eternal logos living humbly, and simply in these changes. A third change is a change of assets. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In his public ministry during his, his life, we could use the word, I don't really like this word, but we could use the word homeless to describe how our Lord and Savior lived. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God wants us not just to read his word, but he wants us to be doers of it. And part of what he wants us to see in here is not just this theological picture, but he wants us to see this, this humble God who has existed forever having these changes that go on these changes of humility. And the last one, I'm not even sure, I wasn't sure how to, what, how to describe this, a change of experience. It really involves suffering. Uh, Jesus suffered. The Son of God suffered. Uh, he went a little beyond them. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou will. One of the changes that took place, if we come back to our diagram during the ministry of Jesus is that he suffered. He suffered in simple ways. After he fasted for 40 days, he hungered. He suffered with hunger, as you and I do. And then the most significant suffering that he would ever endure, that would ever be endured by anyone, was his suffering on the cross on Calvary. And he's praying here as a fully human being, as someone who has become flesh. That is what verse 14 is, is teaching us. He is praying that if it's possible, allow this to pass from me but not as I will, but as you will. And so we have this picture of how his grace, uh, of how Jesus has, has been humiliation. The humiliation of Christ is the picture of what we have here and how this relates to us. It is calling us to live out the paradox of the Christian life. Uh, the way to go up is down. The pathway to maturity is, is servanthood. This is the picture. This is part of what we should see in John 1. This picture of this eternal Logos who has made all of these changes. And he's calling us as his people to make changes as well. 
Not because we earn brownie points, but he calls us to use our gifts, to give our resources, to, to consider others better than ourselves, to model what he has done for us, the eternal logos, becoming a human being, and the way that we live our lives. This is part of where joy and peace is going to come from. It's so counterintuitive. If you are suffering, you're in the middle of discouragement, you're in the middle of depression right now, part of the way out of that is to, is to seek Christ and to follow this pattern of humility and to serve others, to give up, to give up. The world teaches, you know, the way out is just to get more. You need more. It's all about you. But God calls us to serve others. He calls us to serve others for the sake of his kingdom. Philippians 2 uh, puts it this way. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every every name. We have not only a theology about the Trinity and the second person of the Godhead here, but we have a pattern. We have a model. We have a description of how he changed and his will for us is for us to change, to become more loving, for us to become more holy, for us to become more giving. And he has shown us in part how we do that. We do that by depending on his grace to make us as he was, a humble servant who took on flesh. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we, uh, we need you so much in our lives. We want to change. We want to become more like our Lord Jesus. But it is very hard. We've identified through this passage some different ways that this happens. And one of those ways is through community. And so, Father, I pray this morning, some of us here need to take steps of being more vulnerable in the communities that we're already in or in just in showing up, showing up on Sunday morning and showing up in a small group saying, I'm going, to be, I'm going to do life with these folks, and I'm going to share just not what's going on in my life, but I'm going to share what's going on in my heart so that we can pray for one another, so that we can love each other as the Father loves the Son. Help us, God, to break down walls of self-protection so that we can love and be loved in redemptive ways. Father, I also pray that we would be characterized as a church and as individuals, as people who overcome darkness so that we can live in the light. Lord, help us, each one of us, to have hope this morning because of what our Lord has done for us on the cross. And finally, Father, free us from the way the world thinks and has influenced us, that the way out of darkness and discouragement is by getting more things or being more successful. We see, as the Word became flesh, that the way up is the way down. The way to peace and joy and happiness is to serve others in humble ways for the sake of God. We pray, God, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and that you would use us to accomplish that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.